Mr. Butler. How are you, my friend? Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm brilliantly well, as always. As always. You're always busy. I'm brilliantly well, always. Brilliantly well. That's a... Um... That's a very bold representation of how you're feeling. I like it. Good. I know. I know. What's not to like? Sydney's back, baby. It's back. It's, uh, Why do you say that? It's very busy, mate. Very busy. Like, like I, my diary, if it's anything to go by, is, I, I mean, I, I am exhausted from the amount of new venues opening, new events, activations, new stadium. It's just, it's, uh, it is a sight to behold when Sydney gets its um, stuff together, and I think that probably somewhat prejudiced by my lofty and vaulted title but like it uh it, it is um it's, it's just it's just on you know it's just on i think we've got a, a venue opening um which uh i'm looking forward to tomorrow night um and i guess i'm aware of a lot of stuff that's coming down the pipeline as well so mm. um, it's you know like many things i think uh it's it, it is limited perhaps by staffing a bit you know not necessarily from a venue's overall perspective but definitely from hours of trading and stuff like that um that's that's still an issue but um the one thing that's sector can do is it's been an exciting sector to work in and that um, has its own attractive force what are you seeing in terms of the sydney market i was there on a couple of weeks ago to watch the swans uh v collingwood and that was obviously there was a lot going on around the city that weekend which was great we're not going to talk about what happened the following week because um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i'm still crying on the inside but um yeah, it's interesting. I hear things from many different environments. I still hear the city is very, very quiet Mondays and Fridays because there's still a lot of workers that are taking those days to work from home. But um, it's really exciting to hear the number of new venues opening up, which is, you know, great. Definitely hearing about significant pressure still on the talent market. And it feels like, not to time check this or to put fear into anyone but it feels like over the last week there's been a significant ramp up in pressure i think people are starting to feel summer coming very much and really understanding how how potentially short they are to deal with the volume of people they're going to have in their venues over summer but there's also you know that's tempered with cost of living and perhaps a very wet summer again so i don't know it's it's just a don't want to sound like a dampener to your very positive report, but um, there's definitely some stress, I, I guess, underlying the very busy summer that could potentially be ahead of us. But anyway, um, we've got a podcast to do. You've arranged today's guest for us. Who have you got along? Yeah, well, I think he probably embodies the spirit of my uh, excitement, really. He, Elliot uh, Solomon, who's the CEO of Solitel. Solitel is obviously a well-known hospitality group. Uh, out of Sydney, uh, many venues across different areas of Sydney, many of which reflect the local areas that communities they come from. And Elliot's taken the reins at Solitel and uh, yeah, very keen to get his particular view on the market, what he's seeing. Yeah, nice. They're a group that's really stood the test of time. We might jump into this topic on him, but I remember, I mean, they've been obviously around for, for quite some time now and just seem to keep getting there, getting it done um, for lack of a better term. But um, let's jump in for a chat with Elliot. Wonderful. Welcome to the Back of the House podcast, Mr. Solomon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. You're looking very uh, bright-eyed for someone who's uh, sporting a youngster these days. Uh, you're doing well there. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, thanks. I had an amazing night's sleep last night, so I'm, I'm feeling very perky, but let's see what happens tonight. You've hit the three-month three mark, yeah. Yes, Archie's 14 weeks old, so apparently it just gets easier and easier, which is great. You've got to believe that. I'm just believing that. Good stuff. Yeah, well, we're really excited to have you on, uh, Elliot, and we, we, we've, I guess, given you a bit of a shout-out in the intro coming on to it. So um, you could just really to, you know, understand a little bit about, um, you know, Solitaire. I mean, most people who listen to this will be familiar with the operation, but I think... Um, you know, it's under your uh, stewardship now, formerly as a CEO. So, you know, maybe in your own words, a little bit about Solitel, the venues and what you're trying to do. Oh, God, where do I start? Well, maybe I'll, I'll start at the beginning. Um, so Solitel was founded by my father, Bruce, in 1986. But the Solomon family's been involved in, in pubs for basically a century in Australia. So um, the the story is that the, the Solomon family comes, well, it's actually, I'll just use the Solomon family name because it's easier, but it was a different name, um, a much more Russian Jewish name. Um, but they essentially, they, they fled Russia kind of between 
it was just after it was around the world around world war one they were fleeing from um there were pogroms in russia which is basically when the russians decided they wanted to kill jews so um the family left and um they thought they were going well the, the first brother thought he was going to america um he thought he was going to new york and he got on the boat and landed in brisbane so i think he got a bit of a shock um and um, he, this is kind of the family folklore. He, he got out in Brisbane and, and um, you know, was very disoriented and, and schwitzing because he's in his Russian attire and he's in tropical Brisbane. And, um, and he's just kind of getting his bearings and he's seeing all these people just rushing into, into this building on a corner and he doesn't know what it is. And he, he goes in and um, he's walked into his first pub and he's, he's experiencing the, the um, you know, the five o'clock swill where everyone's just getting absolutely tanked for, for an hour before the pub closes. And he kind of went, Oh, this seems like a kind of good business. So he started working in a, in a pub there and then came down to Sydney and started kind of operating pubs and living above them. And he actually became quite successful and over a few years brought out all of his brothers. And my great-grandfather was one of those brothers. Um, and so my great-grandfather, when he moved from Russia, was living above the Burdekin Hotel and operated the Burdekin Hotel. Um, and my grandmother grew up there as a little girl. And then they moved to the, um, the Unity Hall and then they ended at the Dalo Bar. So um, my great-grandfather, Jack, took over the, Dal the Dalo Bar in the early 30s. So it's been nearly 90 years in the family. Um, so and my, my grandfather, when he married my grandma, his wedding dowry was the licensee of the Dalo Bar. So, so my grandfather was the licensee for 60 years. From the end of the, from 1939 to 1999 when he passed away. And um, he actually told his, his, his sons not to get into the pub game because it was a game for mugs. Um, and my dad was um, a lawyer. He was a barrister and um, really hated it. And my grandparents were actually going to sell the Dalo bar and dad offered to buy half of their share and started running it. So ran the Dalo bar um, then went into business with a friend of his, the Pado Inn, and that's when Solitaire was born in 1986. So that's a very quick potted history um, of the family and the business. Um, but so since then, so 36 years later, we have 26 venues, 1,600 employees. We used to have a few venues in Brisbane. We now only have one venue in Brisbane. Um, but would like to grow back there again, um, and the rest are in Sydney metropolitan area. So, and um, broad range of pubs from local community small pubs like the Dalo Bar um, and the Cordy in Newtown to um, you know the the big end of town of Golden Sheaf Opera Bar, um, and then um, restaurants which we own um, in partnership with Matt Brown. So, nice summary. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think what a, uh, I, I wasn't aware of the foundation story actually, which uh, I um I, th I think I don't know if it's commonly known, but it's uh I don't think it is commonly known. No, yeah. So I was, we're starting to speak about it more because you know it's it is a kind of unique story, and you know I think it's also it, it, one of the things that I'm like proud of with that story is it's a story of of migrants and it's a story of refugees and you know people that were fleeing somewhere um and ended up in australia you know not not they weren't planning to be here but they ended up here and they you know kind of got involved in in this australian cultural beacon which is the pub and here we are today so yeah it's a it's a it's a pretty cool story i think Mm, I, like like uh, we we go very tangential in this podcast. Uh, it's a, that that word comes up quite a bit when you listen. But but it I, I mean you, you know context of what's going on uh, in Europe, um, Afghanistan, it it and you know, you know the migrant and refugee patterns around the world at the moment. Like I think it is a a timely story. I think and one of the things that has excited me in Sydney at the moment and around you know some of the challenges facing the industry. Uh, there's a enterprise known as Kabul Social, which is basically a fully Afghan staffed, run, operated venue. And in terms of you know, it's a platform experience for um, Af Afghani refugees. Not not a cheap labour model. It's like come in, tell your story through food and bringing people together, and then let's acclimatise you to Australia and and 
set you on your way, whichever direction that may be. And that one of the highlights of that story is that the uh, hundred-person business that um, Sean Christie David now runs uh, has, you know, as, as head of HR, essentially uh, an Afghani lady that's double degree qualified and was doing that kind of work in in Afghanistan um, up until a year ago. So, yeah, I think that the that that I just think that story resonates um, with me personally, anyway. Um, and and I think we'll, with, with 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 many other people, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, we're all we're all migrants in this country, right? We all have a story of how we got here and and what our families did. Um, And I think, you know, for um, hospitality up until, up until COVID and starting to again now, you know, we're often the the first place that new migrants come to work. We are the industry that people come to work, whether that's, you know, you know, through skilled visas or whether that's through um, student visas Tourist visas, you know, very often their first kind of interaction of working and being part of the community is in hospitality. And there's so many, you know, I used to work in our venues when I was at uni and there's so many, so many of my friends I made were um, new migrants. And I'm actually going to give a call out to someone I'll tell him when I see him. There was a guy that I, that I worked with at the Clock Hotel when I was 19. His name was Shiva. And we became very close and we closed the uh, the pub together quite often. And through that, we became quite friendly. And he just moved from Nepal and he was, I think he had like a medical sciences degree, but it wasn't recognised in Australia. And so he was working in, in the pub at the Clock Hotel and he was also studying at the same time, trying to get his degree um, recognised and he was um, you know, working like five or six days at the pub and he was waiting for his, his family to come to Australia. He had uh, a wife and a, and a newborn. Um, anyway, so he worked at the pub for a year or so and then uh, either I left or he left and we kind of um, lost touch. And about a year ago, I moved to Bondi and I was in Harris Farm and I bumped into him in Harris Farm and I said, Shiva, how are you? Oh, my God, it's been so long. How have you been? And he was... Um, He's now the general manager of Harris Farm Bondi. And, you know, that is a bloody big store. Like, and he's got a lot of employees. And I was just so cool that, you know, 10 years later, I don't know what happened with the degree, but 10 years later, he's, you know, fresh to the country and now he's running like a really big business. So shout out to to Shiva and all the others, um, you know, who are who've just come to the country and, and are, you know, working hard and, and, and you know, um, making a difference, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the things Luke and I were keen to pick your brain on a bit is like the Solitol has a, and you know, Luke, probably you should jump in around the, the cultural brand of the business, like from a, um, and, and where that kind of comes from. Luke, do you want to lead that one? I think you. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I'm actually struggling to figure out how to position it because everything you've said, we could go in so many different directions around that topic but i guess my experience from being in the industry and being keystone for 11 odd years while you and i think our businesses at, at that time call it early 2000s through to 2012 13 period probably both, both went through very similar journeys in terms of growth um yeah. and many people would have said that there were fairly similar cultures across those two yeah, businesses as sure. well and yours has always been you know um, it's very, very rare that you hear anyone say anything negative about the culture at, at um, Solitel. Like I, I probably couldn't recall someone doing so. Um, and there's also, I guess, the diversity topic, which you've kind of touched on loosely, but um, you kind of represent yourselves or report yourselves as Australia's most diverse hospitality group. Are those two things, and correct me if that information is no longer um, up to date, but we are, we are just about to um, re, re- <laughs> change. Okay, well, you um, have done, um, 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 but we we have yes, we have for many years um, referred to ourselves as that, and um, diversity is is very much a part of I think who we are as a company. 
And and I guess my question poorly asked is, do those two topics, are they um, related to an extremely high degree or is it just, um, I guess, circumstance? Because the, the positive culture and the diversity that you look to employ both in venue style and people, um, to me as an outsider, look like they kind of work really well hand in hand. Yeah, well, thank you. That's nice to hear. Yeah, I, I guess they are related. To me, I feel that the, you know, that, that value of diversity I think comes from my family and, you know, the, the story that I've just shared in terms of being a family of migrants, you know, escaping persecution. I think, you know, we kind of understand what happens when, you know, the, the opposite of, of being diverse and, you know, being ignorant and being, you know, homogenous, what, what it can actually do. So, and I, I think when you are also from a, cultural minority you know you're kind of aware of the fact that you're a bit different and sometimes you might check yourself in terms of you know where you are and what you say and so I think being aware of that it's it's kind of part of who we are as a family so I think that that has always kind of it 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 trans it kind of extended into um the way that dad set up the business and who he is as a person and also like my grandfather his favorite saying ever like always say to me, I remember when I was a little boy, he'd say, Elliot, don't be an ant, don't be an ant. You know, it was always about being an individual and, and being different and celebrating uniqueness. And that's really like the family ethos is all about just being an individual and being unique. And that's something that's special. And so I think, yeah, that's just how, I guess, innately how we always approached people. Um, and my my dad, Bruce, he, since he started Solitel, he always preferred working with women. Um, and so he always had, you know, like the first, his first employee was a woman called Rosie Hebel who worked for us for over 25 years. Um, she was the general manager of the Paddington Inn. She then ran Solitel. Um, you know, we had, of course, Justine Baker, um, who's our ex-CEO, who still works with us on our board. Um, we just always have had we always had a strong contingent of women in our, in our workforce, just because that's who dad, dad liked to work with women. And I think also just by the nature of where our venues have always well, traditionally been in the inner city, which were, you know, the, I guess the homes of the LGBTQIA community, um, you know, progressive people, it just kind of, that was always the base of um, the people. And I obviously, when you have that kind of representation, you attract more of those kinds of people as well. You attract the diversity because people feel like they're being represented. And yeah, so I think it, it just started um, through the family, through the way that dad operated the business, and like when it was small and it kind of multiplied that way. And so I know that's what often attracts people to the company. Um, and so it's really important that we we have to continue to live by that, but the expectations are different. And to be frank, it's, it is a challenge because particularly when you get to a size like we are and you have, you know, teams that are responsible for different venues and for different functions, it, it is challenging to make sure that we stick true to that, I guess, diversity and and trying to stay away from you know being corporate in a good way in terms of the discipline and the structure and the decision making but at the same time not being too corporate that we lose sight of what we are that we're a family business we talk this stuff to death on this podcast uh as a customer for example and you know i think i have to disclose my biases having run time out for years and so forth but um it the, the, you could almost be forgiven for not recognizing that the venues, many of the venues are connected in a way, like it, at a corporate level. So just because of the sheer diversity of them, you know, so Goros, for example, Mali, Bank, you know, the courthouse, obviously, um, yeah. you know, these, and I was really attracted to that because through the lens of time out at looking at different communities, you know, and people are doing business models, I'm not going to um, say that they don't work, but, and you and I had this conversation the other day, actually, but there's, there's an element where, um, you, you know, you want a city to be welcoming and different venue expressions um, create something for multiple communities as opposed to a sort of one one brand that kind of 
you know, gets gets rolled out as people, not necessarily in the pub space use so much, but definitely from a, you know, a, a, a food perspective, franchising and so forth. Like it's one of those great uh, lived experiences of the group, I think, is that diversity. And, and it's interesting to understand now the backstory and, uh, and how it, it may not have been driven by a corporate strategy in the traditional sense. I don't know if that's a bit um, of a bridge too far, but it, it definitely comes through in terms of the diversity that you, you, you boast. No, I think it's, I mean, I think it comes innately from, from the family and the family business. But I think now the challenge is when you do get to that size, um, how to make sure there's that diversity. And also on that point that you said about the venues being catered to the community which is really what they should be and what they have been and you know the people that work in them live in the areas and you know understand the communities but at the same time you know you start to go okay well group procurement deals group chefs you know we want to do the same you know for quality have the same steak have the same burgers which you know we do but it's it's that balance of trying to make sure that you know, we're giving the venue the benefits of coming from a bigger company without making it feel like it is part of a big company. Because, yeah, I, I, I love that when when I meet someone and I say I'm the CEO of Solitel and the, normally the first thing someone says is, what's Solitel? Um, particularly if they're outside the industry. And the second, then when I start kind of listing the venues, they're like, whoa, you own that venue? Oh, wow. Okay, cool. I didn't. So I, I actually really like that anonymity can we look at the topic of culture uh separate to the diversity topic obviously that we're talking about but how if you could i guess assess your performance there or how you've actually achieved that culture with a view to you know if every business in hospitality had a, an exceptionally strong culture i think our staffing challenges would probably be far you know heavily reduced what do you put it down to is it is it a daily topic of conversation is it setting up a system or a structure that just makes it happen um voluntarily like what do you what what do you ascribe the success to i mean it's pretty uh you know everyone knows culture is quite a wishy-washy no set formula kind of thing and I, i wouldn't say there's a key point i think that it's really about particularly for the people that have been in the business for a long time and understand what's important in the business and to kind of act in, you know, act according to like the values and the culture of the company, which you can't standardize. You've just got to know that whoever's, you know, there is going to make sure, for example, that, you know, dad always, I remember when I first started working in head office and dad would always say, you know, it's all about didactics. It's all about, debating it's all about listening to other people and coming up with a solution together and it always talk about that and so you know that's how we that's how we hold meetings that's how I hold meetings with my team that's how I hold meetings in every meeting I'm in I'm always like I'm trying not to speak I'm always asking everyone what do you think what do you think what do you think by the way sometimes that's a curse because then sometimes it's hard to make a decision um, and sometimes you compromise as well but I think <clears throat> it's about living through those examples and if you give people if i'm doing that i'm hoping that the people you know that report into me and further down the chain are acting that way as well with the teams and saying asking people what they think what are their points of views what do they think we do well what do they think we don't do well do they have ideas and you know some of the venues like for example um trying to think like waywards at the bank hotel Waywards was not my idea. It was um, a person in, in the marketing team came up with the brand and came up with the concept and, you know, felt comfortable to do that and also was in a place where we were like, let's just give it a go. You know, Dust Club at the, at the Eddy was, I had nothing to do with that. That was, you know, an idea that came from the ground up and they've, you know, they've executed it and they've done a good job. So I think that that's, it's, it's about trying to create that environment and as leaders in the business, making sure that everyone is doing that. Having said that, it's really difficult. And because of the amount of turnover that we've had in the past year, there are a lot of people that don't really understand the culture or know the culture. So it's going to be a challenge for us in the coming couple of years to be continued to be known for that because 
I'm going to have to like, well, everyone's going to have to go out and, and live those values and, and explain them to everyone because we don't have that group anymore that across the venues that worked for us for a long time. We've still got some, but we don't have what we're used to. Other kind of small things are, you know, we, we do a lot of company surveys. Um, we have like um, culture surveys. I host town hall meetings like on Zooms, get, say, you can ask me anything. I try to go to as many events with assistant managers or go to venue meetings just to try and not be faceless and also ask people what's going on, how are you feeling, do you have any ideas, why is the business going this way, and and trying to create, yeah, I guess like a non-hierarchical structure. And the other thing from a corporate perspective is that we do have diversity targets. So we we kind of look at roles, all different roles from, you know, junior sue to head chef to um, assistant managers to departments to venues. And we, we look at, you know, what the, the gender split is and we, we try and aim for targets. Um, we're not, you know, I don't think it's like by this year it has to be X. We just, it's something that we always look at and we discuss it as well with the venues and we share that information with the venues too. How do you like um, find, you, you know, I guess we, the way we're going to frame this is like pros and cons of family business, but like you've sort of been opening, like in talking about, you know, the background and the um, foundation story. And I was with uh, you the other night and, you know, at the opening of Rakota, which we'll get on and talk about. And uh, very much it was a pleasure to see um, but Bruce and Anna there as well. Like, is there, like, how, how do you, because it's a, it's a family business at some scale, really. Like, that's the yeah. kind of where I'm headed with this direction. Like, pros, cons, like, I don't know, it's, a, it's the oversimplification, but what are, what, are, what are some of the challenges it brings? Uh, look, I think the, you know, as, as you said, Mike, it's, it's a family business, but it's a family business of a certain size that now has also undergone a succession where the founder's not actively in the business, but still still involved and, and still basically my boss, but isn't in the office every day and, and kind of isn't leading the teams. Um, so when that happens, generally you've got a, you know, kind of governance structure and all these things, which, which we have done. Um, so, you know, we have an independent board, we have independent advisors, we have a management consultant come in and, and help us with structure and how decisions were made. We did all of that. That's been in place for like quite a few years now. Um, so, but where, where this, you know, where they're kind of in between, we're not, we're privately owned, we're family controlled, we have family members still actively involved in the business, but we also try and behave as though we are a corporate a corporate company that might have variety of shareholders, not publicly listed, but you know, we try and create the discipline and that discipline's definitely come down into the rest of the business for better or for worse. In, in some ways it's great because it gives more structure and certainty on decision-making and, you know, there's, I think the way we manage, we, we manage a lot better. But at the same time, um, this is a conversation I have with my team is, you know, how do we make sure when we are this family business and we're about diversity and we're about the communities and we're about, you know, supporting the little guys as we have you know, through products and musicians and artists, how do we make sure we don't lose sight of that when we are starting to become bigger and more corporate? So that's that's a, a challenge. Um, but at the same time, I think that discipline has meant that we make decisions easier. There's a lot of opinions from the family and without that kind of clarity on who makes decisions and when other people need to get involved. It, it, it was a challenge a few years ago and I think that's been kind of resolved. Um, but I think still being a family business, you know, we make decisions very quickly. 
the buck ends of the family so it doesn't we don't have to continually ask for approvals or, you know, we kind of move very quickly. And I think we've seen that with things that we've bought. Often it's just because we can kind of put the offer in before, you know, some of the, the funds can put in um, their offers. And there's, you know, being a family business, it's it's still not only corporate or hierarchical. And ultimately the family's passionate about hospitality and, you know, I don't know, we, we, we care. So I think that all those things, you know, they make a big difference and that makes us, I guess, still, of course, there are other family businesses in hospitality that I think, you know, do an amazing job and people also like working for those businesses because they're family businesses because it's, it's just a bit, there's more heart to it, even if it's not necessarily heart in terms of it's a very caring business, um, which I think Solitel is, but, you know, it's just more that you see the people that you work for, you see them in the venues, you see how much they love the venues, you see them, you know, they're creative and and that's kind of exciting. So I can't imagine not working in the family business, that's for sure. One, uh, like I want to get on and talk a little bit about um, Ricardo specifically, but as an uh, example, uh, and so... I guess, um, you know, one thing that, and this is a venue that's uh, just recently opened, I think on level one of Barangaroo House, um, well, one flight of stairs up anyway, I don't know what level that is, but... Located at 35 Barangaroo 2000. There we go. But what, what, what uh, inspired me about it is is that spirit of reinvention, uh, you know, particularly given its timing coming out of the pandemic. I w- would love to know a little bit about how, you know, the business or comes to shape venues um and you can use Ricodo as an example or others if you like yeah i can use Ricodo as a kind of example but i guess when coming up with with the like the concept or narrative of the venue there isn't a, i don't think there's a linear process very often think myself um dad uh, anna and you know now the kind of greater solitel team particularly the exec team um, and the design team um, at Solitel, we're just, you know, you get inspired by different things and, and you kind of, whether that be going to a different venue or going to a different city or going to a different country, you kind of see something and go, wow, that's so cool. I wish we could, we should do that in, in Sydney or in Brisbane. And, um, and also things like, you know, inspiration from, from like a museum you go to or, you know, I'm always really interested in curation and how, how gallerists curate and how they can kind of make the experience through the art. Like, you know, when you start the journey from the front door of the gallery to the end, um, obviously lighting is, is a massive one in art now. And that's been a big inspiration for us, the Abercrombie or, you know, whether it's music and just loving listening to music and going, how could we incorporate this kind of music into um, our venue? So often there's, there's something, there'll be a, a, you know, some kind of catalyst that will come up with an idea and we'll go, oh, that would be cool. And then we just kind of park it and leave it somewhere, whether it's in someone's head or it's written down somewhere and we just wait until we find the right menu to do it. When we do, you know, start working on a new venue or renovation or a relaunch, we often will, you know, research a lot, research an area that the venue's in, be that through interviewing customers um, surrounding surrounding venues, surrounding, you know, neighbouring businesses, residents, um, look at demographics, look at competitors who works in the area, often do a lot of research on the history of the area, you know, who started the area, where did it, you know, how did it evolve and all those things. And generally from all of that kind of research, something will come up or it will link an idea that we previously had that we've been inspired you know, from, from another, another place. And then we often, you know, we'll kind of research the concepts, go deeper into the concept. Um, sometimes we write stories to kind of develop the concept. We might create playlists, mood boards, written, you know, um, timeout reviews or good food reviews. You know, we're just trying to really put some flesh on it before it actually becomes physical. And then often when you have an external come in, um, you know, generally the architect or or the um, if we're using external creative agencies as well, the concept will kind of evolve with them too. And then operational insights and all those things kind of 
end to where the venue is. I think for Rokoto, it's it's quite a good example of that. The idea of, well, I guess the the inspiration of listening bar for me started 10 years ago because I went to Japan for the first time and I was with a mate of mine who is a big, you know, fan of Japan and been there many, many times. And we were in Shibuya and we were kind of, he was showing me all these back streets and the bars, you could just go into the office buildings and there's a bar on one of the levels. And we walked into, we saw that there was a bar in this kind of dingy office block. And we actually ended up walking into a, what is now an incredibly famous bar called JBS, which is you know, the ultimate listening bar experience. And it really is. I think it's quite touristy now, but you walk in and there's, it's a room that's probably max 15 square meters or something. It's just a bar with a, an extra eight seats. And the, it's all of it is just a library of, of records. A man in his kind of 60s or 70s behind the bar um and basically this guy kind of left his corporate job and he opened this bar and he just is a massive record head and he plays records and puts them on like a little stand so you can see what you're listening to and then he pours whiskey and if you're hungry there's like a little kind of kitchen where he makes a stew and gives you the food and so i kind of walked into this and was like whoa this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And so I went to a few um, when I was there. So I always thought to myself, well, this is a really, really cool concept, you know, this idea of like vinyl and listening to it on really good sound systems and, you know, drinking whiskey. And it was just not like nothing I'd seen before. And Japan is like a really big inspiration for me from a design perspective and from a cuisine perspective as well. And then Personally, some other stuff happened. You know, I got a bit older. I started drinking more like nice wines and whiskeys and my friends instead of us going out dancing. We'd kind of like sit in lounges and people started talking about sound systems and clarity of sound. And so I became more interested in that. Um, and um, on the parallel side, you know, Barangaroo House opened five years ago and House Bar and Smoke were a great success, but B never was. Um, it just never really, just never worked. We kind of missed the mark. And I think also once the casino opened, the area changed, demographics changed of the area. The kind of people that were coming there on the weekends was much younger, people that were kind of looking for more of a party vibe. And that kind of amplified smoke and amplified house and then just made B feel even more left out. So we knew that it, we, we kind of, um, repositioned the restaurant about two years ago, kind of worked, but it didn't. And so we just went, you know what, we've just got to bite the bullet and change it. And so looking at the clientele that was starting to come into the area, looking at the fact that the corporates that were coming back to the event, back to the office towers were more the younger generation that didn't want to have the more elevated and formal restaurant experience that you would have it be. We said, okay, we need to make it more casual, more, more fun, more vibey, more related to the other two levels. And so, you know, and obviously we still wanted it to be a restaurant. And so the kind of Japanese food concept started. And then we started talking about vinyl and it became a sort of a list inspired by listening listening bars in japan and and that's kind of how it evolved um and then obviously um my sister anna did the design she did it with humphrey and edwards who you know architects that we work with um a lot and have been working with for a very long time so it's very easy to work with them and yeah and spend a shit ton on on the speakers um and yeah, it's honestly, it's been such a, it was such a fun project to work on and, um, you know, early days, but the response has been awesome. And yeah, I'm, I'm super proud of, of the venue. I must say, I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah. And I think like there's the element of, um, you, you know, and we can talk about this at another time potentially, but it's, there's that through my eyes, there's been a last 10 decade has been a function of, did you know about this from a food and beverage perspective? So that's cocktails, gins, craft beers, you know, organic wine, like a whole lot. And then, but, but now with the, that proliferation and access um, of that product at home, the question for the out economy is like, well, what's going to make it worthwhile coming out? 
because the pr- consumed product is, and of course, like, uh, you know, I don't insult, insult half the listenership here. Like I, I get that the uh, F&B component of venues is highly important and done at a standard, in the, you know, in, in, um, in uh, venues that most people can't do at home. But at the same time, like uh, the listening, a listening bar experience is probably not some, what someone can do at home to, you know, in, in comparison. And when I saw the venue opening through my lens where it's how do I get people back into the city now, I'm like, oh, this is like a, a reboot for Barangaroo in a sense. I, you know, we hadn't talked about it, but I sort of saw this as, well, if I had a, a workforce, we'd be like, well, come come in for half a day's work, and well, then we'll go down to Rakoto <laughs> like, and, and 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 have a good old afternoon um, experience, you know. Um, so yeah, congratulations on that, and you know, we should we should every every success. Not to go too deep into the whole COVID experience at all, because we've, we've kind of done that to death. But how do, how does the experience over the last couple of years shape the way that you're thinking? And I, I guess I referenced the diversity of your businesses. You you would be in a far better position than I think most operators or many operators would. I can think of only one or two others who have got late night traders, entertainment focus, pubs, high end restaurants, um, or casual restaurants, um, geographically diverse as well. Um, how is the response from patrons? trade been and is that changing the way that you're thinking about what you need to do next from a concept perspective to meet the market like are the late night traders and Mike referenced that I think earlier on but have they come back really strong like is Goro's um, as busy busier not as busy um, as it was before how's that sort of how are you thinking about that in the future yeah so I mean it it was an an interesting journey in seeing and I feel like because we had that cross section we kind of lived the experience of everything the media reported but we kind of started happening to us probably a week or two before they reported it so what we found was you know obviously all the kind of city venues were were decimated and the local pubs and local restaurants had exceptional um trade like you know kind of busier than normal and then as people have returned to work and tourists have come back as well the city venues have really picked back up and and now some of those local pubs and local restaurants have actually softened because you know people are not working from home as as much and and not staying local as much they're kind of keen to go and travel it's yeah we've kind of seen that movement go back into the city and away from the suburbs but the thing that was the slowest to come back was the late night. And I think it really was that that double whammy of lockouts and lockdowns. And um, Mike and I have discussed this many a time, but it's that people need to kind of learn to go out again and, and learn to experience late night and see the city as a place, not just the CBD, but the whole of Sydney as a place that you can go out and have fun late at night i must say in the last kind of month or so it's really shot back up and i guess it's you know people really finally lifting out of um the pandemic and being far less scared and far more just willing to um you know live their life but and i think also having tourists and and the really honestly the good work that's being done by i think operators, government, councils to really try and push energy and, and you know, push the agenda of that there's lots of things to do. Um, and, you know, we, we just did a, um, a big kind of group activation called Sydney All Nighter um, a couple of weekends back, which was, you know, 16 of our venues, the idea that you could kind of see music all night um, across different venues and, um, you know, we had, you know, artists like Montaigne or Harvey Sutherland, Northeast Party House, House of Mints, and it was supported by the New South Wales government through um, one of the grants um, that we applied for. And, I mean, we just had the most amazing reception to it. You know, like some of the, we had like the biggest, I think we had the biggest night at King's Cross Hotel since 
like 2014, you know, there was just, and we, and across the board, we had these huge nights um, and it was just great to see that people really, you know, they responded well to the lineup and responded well to going out and responded well to the concept and kind of seeing really great musicians in smaller venues. And yeah, so I, I think that I really feel like it's, it's changing and people are starting to go out more and have more fun and dance and that's the limit and a lot of the kind of work that we're going to be doing over the coming year or so really is more in that late night space well yeah like i want to um double click a bit on that discussion and thanks for kicking it off luke and elliot like the uh because one um observation might be and i know the ntia had um some work on this and something we've been thinking about and uh testing is i guess that relearning to well learning to ride the bike um in terms of going out in vent in regulated venue spaces and I, I choose those words very carefully because for 18 to 20 year olds who've been in lockdown their only going out experience has been in unregulated venue spaces for a lot of them because the, you were the venue the regulated venue space wasn't wasn't functioning you know and so and and of course like there's um and i was listening to myself on a podcast uh, um as i as with the stony roads crew recently and i talked about my experiences of going out as a one of very few brown people uh in the 90s uh and being uh, stopped at doors racially profiled uh, and being quite intimidated as a young person um in the presence of um security and police and of course you know hearing sort of the experience of young people now going out for the first time and some of those themes being surfaced again i i sort of thought is it is it unique to any generation this or is it part of the going out experience and i i'm very conscious of you know um i guess your focus not only through the abercrombie but through other venues at uh i guess that late night and i don't want to reduce it down to clubbing experience but i'd love for you to kind of give us your perspective on uh you know the uh, you know, that young, very young audience, say, shall we say, 18 to 20, 22, that, that range there. And uh, how does the city best cater for them uh, through, you know, the work that you do and, and by, by association, the work that we're trying to do? I'm no expert on this and, I, and I, I kind of, I'm just working on feel. I guess that I know that, you know, fundamentally people like to go out like to socialize, like to dance. And I know that from my experience when I was, um, you know, a young uh, whippersnapper going out a lot and, you know, clubbing and the experiences of my siblings and everything, you know, the these venues are really, really important for a city. Like, you know, like-minded people meet through music, they meet on dance floors, they meet, you know, their partners, they meet their friends, they meet your, they meet their business partners. And there's so many um, examples. Like for me, you know, when I was um, from the age of 18 to 21, like Club 77 was the coolest club in my, you know, in my kind of clique, I would say. And, um, and I look back on that now and I, you know, know people from that area people that i met from the club and like so many of them are you know artists fashion designers creative agency owners um actors musicians and they all know each other and they all know each other from that club so i think that you know there is such an importance and i think people crave that like it's 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 something really special about when you go to a venue and you meet people on the dance floor and you bond over music or dancing, you know, it's really special. So I think that having said that though, it's, it's, it's been a long time since we've had those kinds of venues. So I don't think it's something that happens overnight. It's going to, you know, it's going to take time for people to go get back into that culture and get back into that rhythm when I speak to specifically for the Abercrombie, for the listeners that don't know um, what the Abercrombie is, it's a, um, a pub that um, is on the corner of Broadway and Abercrombie Street in Chippendale. Um, it was a quite an infamous nightclub. Um, it was the home of Purple Sneakers. Um, it was the home of Sash. Um, you know, really, really kind of prolific club slash pub 
um, in Sydney and it closed down when um, the when the brewery was being redeveloped by Fraser's and we bought the pub off Fraser's um, and we are hopefully opening at the end of the year. Um, it's been a long time coming. It's been like five years, so I can't bloody wait to open. But we are opening a nightclub as part of it and we've got a 24-hour licence and everything. And, and so, you know, there's been this kind of constant check for us because so many people that are working on the project are like, we're bringing back the Abercrombie, we're bringing back the Abercrombie, it's going to be amazing, you know, this this old stalwart of, of the Sydney club scene. But at the same time, the people that are going to be going to this club have never been to the Abercrombie and were like... 10 years old when the Abercrombie closed. So, you know, and on top of that, their expectations of going out and what happens late at night is very different to what we thought was, you know, cool and great. Um, and so I've been trying to really speak to as many people as I can who are in that age group, um, whether they work um, at Solitel or otherwise, just to kind of get their their perceptions on, you know, what is going out and what they think about going to a new nightclub. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's there's a lot of interest. And I speak to someone like um, like Julian Tobias, who's just opened a nightclub in Kings Cross, and he's telling me that the response is really good. And you know, the numbers that we get through Kings Cross Hotel with this group, like there are, they do want to go out, but. They, there is a trepidation and and a lot of the feedback that I get is that because they don't they've never gone out really in Sydney to a nightclub um, so but they still go out so very often the consistent thing that I get told is you know illegal warehouse parties um, in the inner west and around Tempe and and you know that the great thing about those parties, that you know they're they're basically like private parties they're they're a group of friends that put them on there's no security everyone knows each other um you know you bring your own grog and whatever else you bring and you know that's that's it's just a, a party amongst kind of an extended group of friends and their perception or often their perception is that that is a much safer space to be in than being in a licensed venue because you know in a licensed venue you don't know who's going to be there in a licensed venue you have security um in a licensed venue you have police that come through um and there's this fear that you know what what might happen in the venue might not be safe and it's it's really interesting because from my perspective and this is maybe just a generational thing I, I don't understand. I think it's much safer to be in a licensed venue because you have security, because you have cameras, because you have, you know, people that are licensed to sell alcohol and have, you know, a responsibility to make sure that the venue is safe. Um, so, um, but at the same time, I understand this idea of, you know, lack of security and only people you know. So I always say to them, look, the idea is that you you might have a a crew of 50 people, but there might be five other groups of 50 that are exactly like you guys and you just don't know them. And imagine if you all met in one place. Um, And of course the place needs to be safe and inclusive and needs to, you know, make sure that, I mean, we want to be a very um, progressive um, and open venue and so you've like there's extra things you need to do to make sure that people feel secure being in, in a venue like that but it i think it it will be a challenge for sure it'll be a challenge to convince people that being in a licensed venue and spending more money on tickets and drinks and you know waiting in line and all those things there actually is benefits whether that's hearing music through a great sound system, meeting people that you wouldn't have met before, seeing, you know, another musician that you wouldn't have seen before. Um, yeah. But it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge for sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we'll no doubt have this conversation um, publicly and privately, like as we go through the next year or so, but it's something that we're, uh, you know, similarly minded around, and look forward to working with you on. And and you know, in time, hopefully, the Abercrombie can can be part of that um, story. I think Luke, you were keen to um, take us into another direction before we wrap with the final five. You've got a law degree, is that correct? I do, and an MBA. 
Yes. Was there ever a chance of you going into an area other than hospitality? Like, what, what, what is it? I know it's obviously the family business and that was probably decided from birth what, you were, what the intent was for you, but what is it about hospitality that keeps you here? Yeah, I, um, I never, I actually never thought that I would get into the family business. I think my father had other um, motivations and, you know, when I look back on it, I go, oh, okay, it was kind of um, guiding me, let's say. Um, to a, to one destination. Um, I actually, uh, no, I wanted to be an architect. And funnily enough, I was, um, I did work experience at an architect, uh, you know, very well-respected architect, Alex Arnas. I worked there when I was a teenager because I really wanted to be an architect. And after working there, he, he sat me down and he said, Elliot, mm, you're, no, you're shooting <laughs> an architect. And he said, you know, you've got such a romantic view of what architecture is and architecture isn't designing, you know, 60 story glass towers and, you know, cantilevered houses and what have you. It's, you know, for most of your career, it's drawing cupboards and drawers and not going on site. And, you know, he said, I think it's much better for you if you're a client like your father. So, um, you know, that was always in my mind. I was always into design so I always saw that as an appeal um, for the business. I did work in law. My family are, you know, a family of lawyers. And so my dad was a barrister. Um, my my mum was a public defender. My uncle's a judge. My other uncle's solicitor. Like I come from a family of lawyers. So I just did law, which I loved. And then when I finished my law degree, I was going to do my work experience. And I went, oh, why would I work? as a shit kicker in a law firm I can work with my dad and learn about business so that's kind of how I got into into Solitel into head office I had worked in the pubs and restaurants um, when I was doing my law degree but that's when I got into head office and I worked in operations I worked in marketing I worked in projects I worked in design with my sister and I was you know by that stage in my mid-20s I think I was very happy and content with where my career was going but I really wanted to go overseas I haven't lived overseas um and so I I tried to get into an MBA because I thought you know I can live overseas and, and learn skills that I think will help me in business and so that's what I did so I moved to London did my MBA there um for a couple of years um very um smartly my my dad did make me sign a contract that said that the company would pay for my degree on the condition that I came back home for, I think it was over two years. Otherwise I had to pay back the degree. So there was a point where I kind of went, Oh, you gotta watch those. You gotta watch, you gotta watch those lawyers, mate. They'll get you. Oh, I want to stay. And I was actually tried to get a job with a couple of different hospitality companies in London. And they all thought I was super sus because they were like, why are you willing to work for us? Um, but yeah, and then came back and, and just came back into the business. But I think, you know, I, I, I guess I didn't always think I wanted to be in the business. However, I think deep down, it was just always there for me. Um, you know, it's kind of in my blood, I would say. And I, you know, I grew up kind of growing up with the businesses back when I was a little one, you know, a lot of the pubs weren't friendly to minors like there were mostly 18 plus venues so there was actually quite a, not many venues that I could go to or I could only sneak into you know outside of hours when I was with dad um and I just remember like the main thing I remember is cigarette smoke like that's the smell of my <laughs> of my uh of my formative years um and you know I remember like going to, I think actually it started for me when dad opened this restaurant in 1995. He'd probably kill me when he listens to this and he hears me bring it up. Um, he opened this restaurant called Ditto, um, which was on Victoria Road in Darlinghurst. And um, it's where it's a, now it's a, it's a Thai restaurant. Um, I think it might've been a spice I am at one point as well. It's kind of, you walk up a couple of stairs to get into the restaurant. It was this super cool, um, a couple of minutes. Sorry. Um, it was this super cool, um, like mid nineties, like contemporary mod Oz bistro. Like it's all stainless steel. It was like, uh, communal dining on this like giant stainless steel bench and 
I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was a disaster of a business. I think it lasted like three months or something and had to close down because it was just losing so much money. But I think that venue, I was like, wow, this is cool. Um, and then I, from there, I started like writing menus and doing like wingdings on word like as decoration and giving them to my parents and you know so there was always like this this interest in 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 the in the venues um yeah there's i mean we also own property so like we you know we looked at kind of doing hotel rooms and apartments and stuff like that so i don't just do hospital but it's my it's my main it's my main gig for sure well, you know, you'll uh, you you never know that that venue may resurface at some point. It's, it's timing just going to be wrong. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I think it was just ahead of its time. I'm conscious of your time and we're, we're uh, been enjoying the podcast. We've got the final five, which we can wrap with if you've got a couple more minutes for us. Shall we do that? Um, favorite book that you've recently read or podcast that you listen to? Uh, I'm more of a, a book guy than a podcast guy. I'll be honest. So I know kind of oscillate between like biographies, history, fiction, but I recently just read a great um, kind of fun what is it it's like a business book but it was about it's called billion dollar whale um have you heard of it it's about this um it's about the one mdb sovereign wealth fund scandal which is like the malaysian sovereign wealth fund that was had goldman sachs involved in it and it was about the guy who kind of set it all up his name was he was called jolo um and he basically through connections with um emirati wealth funds set up this um, sovereign wealth fund in Malaysia and he stole hundreds of millions of dollars and with that money he just like lived this crazy playboy life he dated Miranda Kerr he financed the Wolf of Wall Street like he made that movie um, he bought hundreds of millions of dollars of art and you know it was just kind of he was a billion dollar whale that's what everyone used to call him and um, it all came crashing down and you know he took the Prime Minister of Malaysia down with him as well who's now in jail so I was just reading this book it was just quite unbelievable but also scary because it actually happened and it's like um, it's like watching the Wolf of Wall Street so I would highly recommend it's a, it's a good read and, and, and let's hope that my time as a lawyer for the Dubai government had nothing to do with uh, the funding arrangement. But uh, then um, what about an album or artist uh, interested in this one, album or artist that you're listening to? My partner and I, we listen to a lot of um, Sade because it's, it's really uh, nice and relaxing and it's kind of like our, I don't know, I think we kind of fell in love to Sade. So I listen to her a lot. Um, but in terms of a new new person i'm really into this um this i think he's from austin um he's a producer called dj pool boy um and he makes um like really lo-fi house music um so it's yeah it's like fun music to kind of dance to by yourself and um maybe hopefully one day listen to at a venue like the abercrombie <laughs> Superb. Looking forward to it. And uh, um, now I'm, I'm keen to know what your favourite drink is. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty basic. I'm a bit of a basic B with my drinks. Um, I pretty much always drink spicy Tommy's margaritas on the rocks with no sugar. Um, and so that's my kind of standard drink, but I do, I'm actually at Rokoto, there's this phenomenal cocktail called a Campi Fizz, which has got rhubarb and shoshu. I'm really, really into rhubarb. So, um, and, um, I drink a lot of this, um, orange wine from, um, uh, it's it's called Vivantaire, which is a French American natural wine company. So I drink quite a lot of that too at home. All all, all helps with uh, um, early days parenting. Uh, you can't answer this may throw you, but you're not allowed to give one of your own venues in response to this one. Um, so your fa- favorite venue? 
I can't think of one, but I easily they're like easily six that come to mind, but I'm just going to list three. Um, Bar Vincent, love Bar Vincent. Just, I just think it's the best restaurant in town outside solitaire menus, of course. Just everything. It's like pure hospitality. Amazing food, amazing drinks, amazing service, unpretentious, just great. You can go there for a day. You can go there with friends. It's the best. If only there were more moments in this, in this world. Um, I love the old fits as well because it's just like a classic pub that hasn't really been touched. And I eat at um, Palace Chinese a lot as well because I'm a sucker for yum cha. <laughs> so Very I'm going to say those are my favourite menus. I, I like the uh, egalitarian nature of the recommendations. It's great. Um, and then lastly, and uh, no limiters on this one, um, who in the industry are you most inspired by? So first first person that comes to mind for me is um, Ian Traeger. I just think he's the coolest dude out. Um, I think he's had the most incredible career um and it's just like a pure creative i mean you know studio 54 in the 70s to public hotels and additional hotels today and he's in his mid 70s like he's just he's an absolute genius just amazing with design loves clubs great with food as well like yeah i just think he's he's amazing um and closer to home in sydney um I just, I think the Swill House group are phenomenal. Um, I think from a customer experience perspective, they are an inspiration. They're so creative and they really just like, they execute their concepts just better than anyone else. And they're also great guys too. So yeah, they're, I think they're, they're awesome. It's a really good um, podcast. Elliot. really grateful for your time and uh all that you do um and your family's done for the city and um you know there's one thing we know for sure is that it's going to be a core part of the the renaissance of sydney in the next couple of years and um and beyond i'm, I'm sure so thanks so much for joining us on the back of house podcast thanks luke thanks mike thanks for having me thank good you, to mate. chat see you guys see ya. Yeah. thank you